0: This is The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles. A ten-part exploration of the astonishing life and tumultuous times
1: of film noir goddess and exploitation queen, Clara Minx Devlin. The woman who incinerates the screen with her evil desires. Trouble
2: never came in a more seductive package.
1: You know, it's funny. You're a tramp, a slaughter, a cheap worthless strumpet, and yet I'm still madly in love with you.
3: A Renoir portrait, as written by Balzac, but with the droll irony of Voltaire.
1: She is, in my considered opinion, the most dangerous woman alive.
0: Welcome back. I'm your host, Arlie Proctor. I'm here with Minx Devlin's granddaughter, Hazel Matthews, and film scholar, Scully DeWolf. Now, in our last episode, Minx became an overnight sensation, with not one but two smash-hit movies... Thrill Queen, and then Jive Crazy. Now, she just signed a seven-year personal services contract with Howard Hughes, who is now the owner of RKO Studios. In this episode, we're going to look at Mink Devlin's brief reign as a what I call a conventional studio-supported movie star. We're going to look at three movies. The first one is The Atomic Bombshell. This is the film that proves that her star power can drag a problematic A-picture across the finish line. The second movie is called Hell is a Female. Here, a savvy director uh, reveals her talent by tapping into the mythic power of her burgeoning screen persona. And the third one, perhaps my favorite, Devil Girl of Cannibal Island. Now, this shows the limits of star power. Even Minx Devlin, at the height of her stardom, can't fix a terrible script, incompetent direction, and... Way too much Howard Hughes money spent on (laughs) all the wrong things. Okay, well, let's begin with The Atomic Bombshell. Skyler?
4: Ooh, ooh boy. The Atomic Bombshell. Well, this one is a fascinating deep dive into the obsessive mind of its producer, Howard Hughes. And uh, what I like to say to my students is this is the movie where Howard Hughes gets to indulge his three great loves. That's the female bosom powered flight and battling communism from his bunker in Fort Hollywood <laughs> and it's interesting because this is also the very first RKO picture that Hughes puts into production and he supervises every detail no detail is too small for him from the visionary aircraft to the design and production of Miss Devlin's brazier
5: yes and actually the brazier is a marvel it's it's <laughs> yeah. like an inspired collaboration of Leonardo da Vinci uh, and Hugh Hefner <laughs> um, so it had a cantilevered underwire bra and these curved structural steel rods that went under each breast cup. And this pulled the breasts upward and it made it possible to move the shoulder straps away from the neck, which meant exposing more of her bosom to the cameras.
0: Wow, and then she, she wore this thing in the movie?
5: Uh, no, no, no. No, she, uh, at least according to her diary, she laughed in Hugh's face, and then she just <laughs> used her own bra and stuffed it with facial tissue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's
4: What's our better? mix, all right. <laughs> yeah. And the script is by Lee Brackett of The Big Sleep and Ayn Rand of, well, Ayn Rand, <laughs> and it layers the tropes of film noir onto a structure that exploits paranoia about the atom bomb. And Minx Devlin assumes not one, not two, but three different identities in the movie. And a big thanks to Cassidy Blake. She's a member of my Dangerous Films Club in Stoverville, North Carolina. And she's the one who rescued a 35mm nitrate print of this film from the sub-basement of the local Moralta Theater.
0: Okay, well let's get into it. Okay? We open on a bar in the New Mexico desert. The bar is called Max Mushroom Cloud. Our star, Wally Big Swede Armbruster, is getting plastered. Now, he devised a detonator for the Hiroshima bomb, only to have his best friend, Major General Bombs Away Baxter, take credit for his work, and then Baxter had Armbruster thrown out of the service as a security risk. Another
3: whiskey. I think 14 is enough, Swede. No, I'll tell you what I
4: Poor sap. So Minx plays Holiday, who is this vampish barmaid, and she hauls the big Swede back to her tiny apartment. And there she lays a chilled washcloth on his forehead.
3: There you go, big boy. Take it easy. Why, Where am I? Where's my rod? Give it back, doll. So you can blow those beautiful brains out? Not till we've got what's coming to us. Uh What do you mean? I mean plutonium, Swede. Plutonium? We're gonna grab ourselves some of that atomic pixie dust. Then you're gonna fix up a firecracker and hold up Uncle Sammy for a million smackers. Are you nuts? That's crazy. Is that what you said when you built those detonators? Ten hours ago, you were ready to give yourself a Smith and Wesson headache. What have you got to lose? Well, you got a plan? First things first, lover. We need
4: to seal our partnership with a kiss. Okay, now we smash cut to the big high sequence at Transuranium Industries. And of course, that's where things go wrong. One partner's killed and the big Swede takes a bullet in the shoulder. And he goes crashing through a roadblock and he somehow makes it back to their hideout, drenched in blood. He's holding the pixie dust as he's blinded by a massive floodlight. Holidays there to greet him.
3: Good boy, sweet. Now let me have it.
4: He hesitates. Another figure emerges.
6: You heard the lady, Swede. Let her have it. Bombs away, Baxter. You? With her? But. But why? Because Holiday here is really my commanding officer. Meet People's Atomic Weapons Development Commissar Svetlana Vasilievich. You
0: mean. She's.
3: She's a commie? Duh, comrade. And Baxter here is really Sergei Bulgakov, lieutenant in the Soviet Army. And this?
4: She flicks off the light and she reveals a huge industrial science lab.
3: Is where I'm going to use that pixie dust you so nicely supplied us to build us an atom bomb. And then we're going to light up Washington, D.C.
4: Cut to comrade Minx wiring together an atomic bomb as Baxter torments the Big Swede
6: don't blame yourself for falling in love with Svetl- Uh, I mean, Holiday Jump. How could you have known about her other two lives? One as a genius physicist, the other as Russia's most, most courageous and decorated bomber pilot. Is that a pip or what? And imagine all that brain power is in a package that could melt the Siberian
4: snowpack. The Swede blacks out. Then he wakes up and he's strapped to a gurney that's being loaded up through bomb bay doors of a US Air Force B-71 super behemoth. That's an airplane that he was trying to sell to the US Air Force. Minx as Svetlana is in the pilot's seat. The camera pushes in on the cockpit's aeronautical clock. Nine hours, whirl by in three seconds.
6: We should be over our target in about a minute, Swede. You ready to go to the great big politburo in the sky? I don't know what city you plan to destroy, comrade. But it ain't Washington,
0: D.C. What are you talking about? Check your gyro compass, Trotsky.
6: Washington is northeast of New Mexico. We've been heading due northwest.
3: Come on, Vasilyevich. What's this all about? Unstrap the Swede, Sergei, and call me by my real name. Real name? Anna Catherine Vasilyevich Romanov. Romanov? You mean, you're the daughter of... Anastasia Romanoff, daughter of Tsar Nicholas II, murdered in cold blood by a Bolshevik firing squad, and now... Put down that Luger. No! No! Oh, nice work, sister. You almost
0: got me believing in the human race again. So all this was...
3: Revenge. And... And something more. Which is... A clarion call to the Soviet people for a second revolution. Let a new spirit of liberty and democracy be ignited by the atomic torch we're about to ignite. I thought so. gonna light up Moscow, huh? Don't
1: suppose we're gonna live to tell the grandkids.
3: The blast will incinerate our plane, but... But what? In Russia, the phoenix is a symbol of resurrection by fire. Through our deaths, we will live forever. Don't
1: say any more, baby. Just lay one on me for old Lang's sake. There it
2: is. Dead ahead.
3: I love you, sweet. See you in heaven. You should
2: have no trouble getting past Sindir, baby. Because you've got
4: one heavenly body.
6: Bombs away!
4: Stock footage of an atomic bomb blast with an American flag superimposed, and Ryan and Minx are kissing and they're ascending into heaven with a mushroom cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, wow,
0: that's beautiful. I love that triple backflip there of Minx uh, starting out as a playgirl and then becoming a commie mastermind, and then she becomes <laughs> a righteous Robotoff Avenger. Man, <laughs> three rolls. The atomic bombshell uh, cost RKO $687,000, and the film brings in three. Point two million in his first year. Mink Devlin, I think you can say now, is a real mainstream, above-the-line movie star.
5: Um, I'd like to read this from her diary. I'm living every shop girl's dream. I'm a star. I feel strong and powerful and happy. And I remember Merle Oberon in Wuthering Heights saying to Laurence Olivier, Make the world stop right here. Make everything stop and stand still and never move again. Then I think of something Dick's Cook once told me. Change is inevitable, except from a vending machine. (laughs) I love that. I love that.
0: (laughs) Well, she's right to think that because she's about to discover just how fragile stardom can be. She hasn't factored in the power that Howard Hughes has to make her and also to break her.
5: So on March 23rd, 1949, Hughes invites Minx for a date on his yacht. (laughs) And after just a lavish dinner, he produces a minister, and he asks Minx to marry him right then and there in um, international waters. You know, a common law marriage with no paperwork and no official record. And when she turns him down... Hughes becomes enraged and he tells her he made her and he can destroy her and no more RKO movies until she comes across. And she knows that this is no idle threat.
0: Well, I'm sure she knows that because he's already done this to another RKO contract player. Uh, A woman who starred in a movie called Out of the Past called Jane Greer. And he kept her out of films for several years and a wrecked her career.
5: Right, right. And so makes wonders if she's through. And then she gets a call from a film director, Sam Fuller.
4: Oh my God, Sam Fuller. To call Sam Fuller a Hollywood original is understating the case. I mean, this is a director of provocative, frugal, gut punch melodramas. So Howard Hughes lends minx to Fuller as what he thinks is a punishment, but really she couldn't have asked for a better filmmaker to define and showcase the screen persona that she's developing, which is tender but tough and everybody's dream of romance but nobody's fool.
0: Hmm. The picture they make is uh, called Hell is a Female.
4: Hell is a female. Okay, get ready for this one. Minx plays Velda Griff Griffin, the recently dumped mistress of syndicate lawyer Marion J. Bigelow. I love old movie names. <laughs> There's a famous and pretty horrifying scene where a Bigelow goon throws a tureen of sizzling turkey gravy right in her face, disfiguring her. That's when she goes over to the law in the person of District Attorney Nick Barker to nail Bigelow. And the iconic ending shot shows up on every highlight reel of film noir. Here, an enraged minx empties five slugs into Bigelow just as a jury brings back a guilty verdict.
5: She actually journaled about how the shot came about if, if you want to play Sam Fuller.
4: I would be delighted.
5: Sam Fuller sets up the shot, then asks.
0: How much do you trust me, Devlin?
5: Enough. Sam points to Broderick Crawford playing the mob boss.
0: Take a good look at him. Then shut your eyes. Shut
5: him. I shut my eyes. He leans down and whispers in my ear. I'm
0: God, see?
5: Yeah.
0: And I'm giving you a chance to settle something once and for all. The biggest goddamn do-over in history. That man. He's the man who killed your mother. Only now you're not two years old, see? You're you. And there's a dragon inside of you, Clara. One that he put there. That piece of shit... He still has your mother's blood on his hands after he beat the crap out of her. And she's lying on the floor of that boarding house like a broken rag doll. And every hug you'll never get, every kiss, think of what you never got. And that prick bastard is the one who took it from you. And now he's right in front of you, Clara. And the dragon is wide awake. Do it, Clara. Do it for your mom. Do it for yourself. And most of all, Clara... Do it for that two-year-old baby squalling in that crummy room.
5: Do it, Clara. Do it now! And about halfway through this inspired bit of coaching, Sam gives a hand signal to Stanley Cortez to roll the camera. And of course, by the time he's done, tears are streaming down my face. I get up, pull out the gun, and start shooting. I keep squeezing the trigger even after I've popped all the blanks. My body convulses in a shuddering, orgasmic catharsis of ferocity as Sam yells, Cut! Print! And then it's just me, limp, in that drafty set, holding an overheated automatic. Sam starts clapping, and then everyone joins in. And I'm embarrassed, mostly because I haven't done anything. I was possessed by the buried fury of that poor girl. She fired the gun.
4: I don't know how he did it, but somehow Sam Fuller discovered the horrifying secret of Minx Devlin's childhood, and that was that her mother was murdered in front of her when she was two. So, Hell is
0: a Female. This is an assignment Howard Hughes used to punish Minx Devlin. Costs $278,000, and it makes more than a million and a half
4: dollars. Yeah, some punishment. (laughs) And really, more than any other picture, this is the one that defines the Minx Devlin film noir persona. She's sexy and vulnerable, at least until that vulnerability morphs into this pure, terrifying rage, and she becomes a righteous, avenging angel.
0: Let's take a very brief break for a word from our sponsor. Only, there isn't one. Because our sponsor is you. We're 100% listener-supported, wholly dependent on you, heading over to our digs at richlyspun.com and bestowing upon us a few choice simoleons. Just enough to express your gratitude, but not so much that you'll miss your next rent payment. Do it now, even as we return to the Atomic Bombshell. Now we come to a momentous night in her life. This is October 29th, 1949, her 21st
5: birthday. So Sam Fuller has put Minx back on top. He wants her for his next movie, but Hughes is calling every day demanding that she return to RKO. And Dixon Cook throws her birthday party at his bungalow in the Garden of Allah. And everyone is there. From uh, Bogey and Bacall to Billy Wilder, uh, Gene Kelly, Lena Horne, Frank Sinatra sings The Song Is You, backed by Earl Father Hines on piano. The first wrong note happens when Minx sees this young, sexy, 19-year-old babe at Cook's side. And this is Paris La Monica. She's the woman he's just signed to star in One Way Ticket to Nowhere. When Minx breaks down in tears, Cook whisks her into his bedroom. Yes, he still loves her, but he has a problem. On November 25th, 1947, the heads of every major studio signed something called the Waldorf Declaration, calling for an industry-wide ban on communists. And anyone who is even suspected of having left-wing sympathies is put on a blacklist list that every studio uses to deny people like Dixon Cook work. Cook decides to make one-way ticket to nowhere with his own money in a completely desperate effort to work around the blacklist. But they both know it's hopeless. Uh, Minx wrote about it in her journal. A desperate surge of wanting rages up inside me. "'like a frantic child scooping up shards of porcelain "'that had only just been a teacup. "'I want to put us back together. "'I grab him, bury myself in his chest, "'look up and try to reclaim him with a hard, hungry kiss. "'I have no idea how much I loved him until this moment. "'He tries to pull back, but my urgency overwhelms him.' I don't know if it's the frenzy of my desire, the thrill of making love ten feet from our guests, or the shock of my erotic assault, probably all three, but Dix and I couple this one last time right there on his bed. My body is half ice and half flame as he finally gives himself to me, his love flowing into me one final time. After we're done, we lay there for a moment, both staring at the ceiling, than a single kiss, and he's gone. I dress and slip out for some fresh air. Being alone is a blessing.
0: Minx walks down the street to Syros, a trendy nightclub where she has her first legal martini. She's just turned 21. Then the bartender puts a phone down in front of her. There's a call for her. Minx recognizes the famous voice. It's one of Hollywood's biggest stars. She's asking Minx to join her in her limousine for a special birthday celebration. Here's what I think of as one of Minx Devil's most astonishing journal entries.
5: Just going to cough a little bit since this is a longie. Yeah. The Juniper Berry has done its work. I take another deep breath, pay my tab, and head toward my rendezvous. The limo pulls up, a huge, gaudy, pre-war English Bentley with smoked windows. The back door swings open, and I'm looking into the deepest, most dazzling pair of hazel eyes I've ever seen. Hazel eyes with emerald shards. Movie star eyes. When those lush, ruby-red lips part and smile, (laughs) well, this is the smile I've seen on a million magazine covers. A smile that captured everyone from Gershwin to Hemingway, to Picasso, to the most virile screen gods in Hollywood. And now, me. The dress, gloves, pumps, and mink wrap are raven black, which sets off the diamonds. Necklace, bracelets, earrings... When she crosses her legs, the gown falls open and reveals her black gartered silk hose with tiny rhinestones glimmering off the back seams and, of course, a diamond-studded anklet. Her legs are sensational. Long, lissome, perfect. I seem to remember that she was a featured dancer and lover of Florence Ziegfeld in The Last Days of the Follies and she's dabbed on just the slightest wisp of Chanel that intermingles with the fresh scent of roses in the bud vases. The seat in front of us has one of those fold-down trays with two small goblets and a silver flask. As this awesome land yacht unmoors from the curb, she fills each goblet and hands me one. We clink glasses and sip the driest most exquisite martini I've ever tasted. One more sip for each of us, and then her gloved hand takes the goblet and places it on the tray. Whatever apprehensions I have, they're melted by the promise of her gaze. Is there such a thing as safe danger? She draws me ever so slowly towards her. My face burns as she caresses it with the silk of her glove. Then, she kisses me full on the lips for what seems like forever. I don't protest. I'm wonderfully helpless, a prisoner to rapture. I'd never been pleasured by a woman before, and that's exactly the right word. It's a revelation. As we drive the streets of Hollywood, Beverly Hills, and Brentwood, she transforms what had always been a one-act romantic comedy into an epic, erotic adventure. She takes me places I've never been before or since. I'm in a dream within a dream, another dimension of pure sensual pleasure, a quenching. My body feels as if it's burning up every nerve ending deliciously raw. After she gives me Sweet release for the umpteenth time. I collapse in a blissful, sweaty, near-naked heap. She draws back and gives me that wicked movie star smile. I grin back at her and pounce on her like a jungle cat. I do things to her that two hours earlier were beyond my imagination. I'm pleased to say that that evening is as memorable for her as it is for me. In fact... Her shrieks are a bit louder. When we're all done, our little loveness is a welter of strewn clothing, the flask, lingerie, and both roses which were put to good use during our lovemaking. And she's lounging against one door, clad only in one of her stockings and the mink. I've got her dress slung over my shoulder— She cracks a window, and the hot, musky scent of perfume, sweat, and rose is quenched by a cool breeze of ocean air. We're at the beach, right at sunrise. Our little adventure has lasted more than five hours, and not one word has been spoken the entire time. We're three blocks from my bungalow. Movie star drops me off. The chauffeur opens the door for me. I look at him and I almost faint. It's movie star's second husband, who was himself a pretty big movie star. You'd know him in a second. He enjoyed the whole thing in the rear view mirror. I'm so exhilarated I can't sleep. I walk to the beach and let a gypsy read my fortune. She tells me I'm a child of fortune and I must surrender to fate.
0: Makes returns home and finds an assistant to Howard Hughes waiting for her. Hughes wants to see her. Now, Hughes being Hughes, he already knows what happened in the limo, but it doesn't matter to him. He again asks her to marry him, and she again turns him down. She wants to work. She wants a picture. He offers her a deal, and what a deal. If he puts her in what he calls, quote, the greatest goddamn movie ever made, and if it makes her the number one box office star in the world,
4: then she has to agree to marry him. She says yes to this. And so begins the weirdly wonderful saga of Devil Girl of Cannibal Island. When Hughes offers to put Minx into the, quote, greatest goddamn movie ever made, what he means is Howard Hughes' idea of the greatest goddamn movie ever made. Because instead of greatest, the operative word here really is most. Most because it cost the most money in RKO's history, Uh, it took the most time to make and remake and remake, and it had the most directors, five that we know of. Well, Hughes did the most tampering, and he shot the most retakes, and certainly at the end of the day, it is the most accurate journey through the demented imagination of Howard Hughes. For decades, the Dangerous Films Club that I run could only show this movie in ninth-generation chopped-up, black-and-white bootleg prints, and that's how I first saw it. But finally, the Howard Hughes estate released it after Howard passed away, so now we can see it in all of its technicolor glory. So, let me tell you a little about it. Devil Girl of Cannibal Island starts off as a relatively conventional RKO film noir project called The Other Woman, with more than a passing resemblance to another arcane movie called Out of the Past. We open on our hero, Chick Crenshaw, who's an ex-GI fighter pilot. He's summoned by millionaire cement contractor Mace Fatman Thornton.
2: Well, Fatman, we meet again. Last time I saw you was, let's see, Berlin, Autumn of 45. You were tickling my nose with a Luger barrel as you and Rodney hijacked my transport. Twenty million in Nazi gold, wasn't it? At least, that's what they said at my court-martial.
1: It was not a time for sentimental gestures. Ah, but that's all in the past. I'm a legitimate businessman now, and I'd like you to work for me.
2: Give me one good reason, Porky.
1: His 25,000 reasons, Mr. Crenshaw.
4: Have I got your attention? So the fat man wants Chick to find his paramour, an ex-burlesque queen named Veronica Ronnie Massey, played by Minx Devlin. He claims that Ronnie has run off with his Nazi gold.
1: She has vanished without a trace, Mr. Crenshaw. It will take a miracle to get her back. And you're in the business of miracles, are you not?
2: What's that supposed to
1: mean? Come, come, dear boy. Everyone knows you have a certain, let us say, gift for finding those who may not want to be found. They come to you in dreams, isn't that how you found Herr Hitler's vault keeper?
2: Once burned, twice shy, Tubby.
1: Let's make it 50,000 reasons. ...enough to purchase that decrepit aerodrome and marry that lovely young girl.
2: And if I fail?
1: Uh-huh. Well, let's just say... ...I've had people killed for stealing newspapers from my driveway.
4: Alright, so at this point, the first director, Jacques Trenur, is fired. And then Don Siegel is hired. And then he's fired. And then Ida Lupino is hired. And then Hughes himself takes over, just like he did on Hell's Angels. So he orders a whole new script, and that takes things in a very crazy direction.
5: Indeed. Minx describes this in her journal How he flies us to Molokai and puts us up in what used to be a leper colony. I read the new script he's written. It is, to quote Willie the Shake, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing.
4: <laughs> yep. Well, okay, in this version, Chick Crenshaw has indeed dreamed the location of Ronnie Massey. And he lands in Hawaii and he takes a kayak to what seems to be an abandoned leper colony. Gaha,
0: seems to be. But he's immediately captured by hundreds of dusky natives and tied to a eucalyptus tree. They're about to plunge a thousand razor-sharp knives into Chick's helpless body when a female voice cries out. Cease!
3: Leave the intruder with me.
0: The servile natives bow and retreat. It's Minx devlin as Ronnie clad in a racy, low-cut, skin-tight sarong that shows plenty of bosom, her entire midriff, and her sensational legs.
2: Well, Ronnie, or should I call you Vooda, Immortal Alabaster Sun Goddess? Hi, Chick. Long time no kiss. We've come a long way since Harvey Falls High School. I especially remember the day I marched off to war. I'll wait for you forever, my love.
3: Chick darling... Why stir the embers of a dead flame?
2: A dead flame to you, baby. To me, it's a torch, and it's still blazing away. So how long did forever last? I know the letters stopped when I was still
4: in flight training. So Ronnie then tells this incredibly sad story. Her invalid mother needed an operation, forcing Ronnie to become a burlesque dancer.
3: Then one night, Double Chin came in.
4: Ah, the fat man
3: gave me a dozen roses, each with a $20 bill wrapped around the stem. She was just what I was looking for, a sugar-coated papa to get me out of that stink hole. He put me on the payroll, and I learned all his dirty secrets. The G-men were already sniffing around, getting ready to put us in the Grey Bar Motel.
2: So that's why you pilfered the bullion and took a powder.
3: Turned the gold into cash and the cash into paradise. Bribed a missionary to let the natives know that the alabaster goddess was on her way. They bought it. And now I've got my own little bit of heaven. Unless you butt in. You're not gonna mess this up, are you, Chick? I can help you forget.
2: Forget what?
3: Everything.
4: So the next hour is Chick versus Mojo, the wildly jealous warrior chieftain who wants Ronnie for his own. He orders his men to kill the intruder, but Minx calms them with her seductive dance of the seven pineapples. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Then she proposes that the conflict be settled with a wild-anything-goes, gladiator style bamboo cage match between Mojo and Chick. The stakes...
3: The winner will share my royal bed. The loser shall be eaten as our next tribal feast.
4: Cannibalism! I mean, why not? Yeah, sure. Whatever. <laughs> sure. And, of course, Chick wins, and Mojo begs Chick to kill him, but Chick lets him live. And then... Then
0: Hughes famously takes an entire week to shoot a 90-second montage of Chick and Ronnie making love. We're talking moans, groans, wet, panting lips, eager hands, undulating flesh, two frenzied shadows wrestling on a diaphanous curtain, and finally, Ronnie's face. A mask of raw desire that cracks in a spasm of bliss. Oh, yeah.
4: (laughs) Dissolved to a thundercloud passing in front of the full moon, Ronnie slumbers in peace, but Chick writhes in anguish. The camera pushes in on his sweat-soaked face, and we're in his dream. It's Ronnie! She's a scantily clad brunette, Joan of Arc, lashed to a cross, embedded in a raging funeral pyre. She screams for Chick to rescue her. His eyes pop open. He rises, zombie-like. He grabs a machete and he trudges out into the night. He bursts through a gauntlet of towering sugarcane stalks and there's Minx lashed to a cross made of bundled bamboo. Mojo is waving a huge flaring torch and he's just about to light the pyre. Chick hurls the five-foot machete at Mojo, knocking the torch to the ground. A melee ensues. And during this melee,
0: we confirm the cinema myth that the average white male movie star can easily
4: subdue 20 to 30 heathens. And then Chick unties the comely, barely clad, captive female.
3: Ronnie? Is it really you? Yes, darling. Then who?
4: Then Minx number one appears in the clearing.
3: Let me reintroduce myself, Mr. Crenshaw. Randy Massey. That's right. Ronnie's identical twin. Miss Goody Two-Shoes there is the one you used to know back in Harvey Falls. Miss Perfect. You can't imagine how much I hated her. She became a nurse. I became a playgirl. Only this playgirl plays
2: for keeps. So you kidnapped your twin sister.
3: So the fat man would find her corpse, assume it was me, and give up. But you see, I never give up, my
1: dear.
5: Fat man. But how?
1: I shadowed chick. You know, it's funny. You're a tramp, a slaughter, a cheap worthless trumpet. And yet I'm still madly in love with you. Isn't <laughs> that of music. I'm about to murder the only thing I've ever loved. Life, such a mystery.
0: His bullet drives Randy backwards into the funeral pyre. He waddles over and flicks his cigarette butt. Wumpf! The pyre explodes in flames, igniting Randy's body. The fat man
4: turns the gun on Chick.
1: Now you, Mr. Fincher, witnesses bad for business.
4: He's ready to kill Chick when he pitches forward a five-foot machete in his back. Ronnie has saved her true love. She runs to Chick, they embrace, they kiss, they look into each other's eyes. The infinite possibilities of a new, bright future reflected in the glow.
0: What an ending. Only no, the greatest movie of all time needs the greatest
4: ending of all time. A volcano eruption. Why not? The (laughs) earth shakes, the sky blackens, the lovers try to outrace the crimson lava, but a terrifying tidal wave of molten rock crashes over them, mere steps from the dock where Chick's seaplane is tied up. The second before they're consumed, Ronnie turns to Chick and she whispers,
3: Dream me forever, big boy.
4: Then the wine-dark tsunami of death crashes down on top of them. The two forms are merged into one, frozen forever in a ten-ton igneous totem of eternal love. Fade out. and credits.
5: Oh, cool. <laughs> <Ta-da-da-da-da>. <laughs> oh
4: yeah! Wow,
0: that's really <laughs> <laughs> something—not something good, but it's not not really something. It is something. It's uh, whatever it is. It's certainly the most of it you'll ever find in one movie.
4: Yeah, yeah. It makes that other over-the-top Howard Hughes epic, The Conqueror, you know, John Wayne is Genghis Khan. Uh, it makes that look like a documentary on Stamp
0: collecting. <laughs> you know, and for all that over-the-top drama on the screen, it was actually no match for what's going on behind the
5: screen. Hazel? When Devil Girl finishes shooting, Minx Devlin is five months pregnant, the result of that last fateful night with Dixon Cook Jr.,
0: She shows up at the Honolulu airport for a lift back to the States, and she's told that the RKO plane has already left without her. Why? Because Minx's adopted mother, Margaret Pendleton Kingsbury, has renounced communism and appeared as a friendly witness before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. She has named 223 people as communists, including her own daughter, Minx Devlin. The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles, is produced in Hollywood, California by Tales Richly Spun. This production is directed, produced, and edited by Matthew Solari and written by Arlie Proctor. Co-producer Kevin Whitaker, artwork by Rowan Proctor. Special thanks to Caitlin Mulder, Stephen Smith, Bill Lithgow, Jackson Duff-Willem, John Roten, and Will the thrill Rainbow. Please visit RichlySpun.com slash Atomic Bombshell to find books and movies about the age of atomic paranoia that pushed America over the edge into madness. Also at RichlySpun.com, you can pre-order the book that inspired this podcast, Minx Devlin's shocking and delicious autobiography that's a thrilling glass-bottom boat tour of the sewer that was Hollywood. Join us next for The Atomic Bombshell, episode number four, Are You Now or Have You Ever Been?